Pastor Mike Favares with Focal Point Ministries. I trust that the following recorded sermon will be a benefit and a challenge to your Christian walk. For more information about Focal Point Ministries, log on to our website at focalpointministries.org, focalpointministries.org, or call us toll-free at 888-320-5885. Well, perhaps you sit here this morning as an optimist. You always think the best of the people around you. I'm not here to knock that, by the way. I would prefer you be an optimist to a pessimist. That's certainly much more pleasant for all those who know you. But being an optimist, if you happen to be one, certainly will set you up for some shocking disappointments in your life. There's no doubt about that. Because there will always be some people that you encounter that you never thought would do some horrible thing that ends up doing some horrible thing. And you'll think, I never thought that they could do that. Well, that horrible, shocking news, that jaw-dropping news that you hear is really something that you need to understand from a perhaps a historical perspective. And by that I mean, as my dad used to say, the police officer home that I grew up in, he would always say when some illicit scandal broke in the news about someone, maybe someone we knew in one of our circles or whatever, he'd say this, he'd say, that's not their first crime. And I thought, well, that's kind of an insightful way to look at it. It's not their first crime. I mean, maybe the first crime that we hear. It must be the big news that broke that got us all to gasp. But really, there was a, a long series of decisions that led to this particular thing. I know we're all born sinners, but it takes some practice to be an egregious sinner. I mean, you, you, there's a descent that leads into the big sins. And that's helpful for us to recognize. Because there are many things you have to do to break through a variety of concentric circles, if you will, of rebellious breaking through those, those restraints to get to the place where you're going to do something that's going to make everybody go, wow, that, that was a horrible thing that that person did. Consider, for instance, the uh, seminary professors of the first century. The seminary professors of the first century that were actually responsible, humanly speaking, for the crucifixion of the Messiah. Now, that's a It's a remarkable thing if you think about it objectively. I know you've grown up perhaps hearing that, and you think, oh, yeah, I know it was all those religious leaders that uh, crucified Christ. But think about that. The religious leaders. These are the religious leaders of Judaism, the Old Testament. They knew the Bible. They taught the Bible. They memorized the Bible. Those 39 books of the Old Testament, they were well-versed. And if you ask them, tell me about what the Bible says regarding the coming of Messiah, They would tell you stories. They would go to prophecies. They'd look up things in Jeremiah and Isaiah. They would present to you prophecies from Micah. And they would say, here, here's what it is. And they would create disciples. And they would start schools. And they would lead you to teach you how to pray. And they would teach you how to to share the realities of, of the one God of Israel. I mean, all these spiritual things. And then the Messiah comes and stands before them. And they're jealous. And they're envious. And they hate him. And they work to get him executed. I mean, that's a jaw-dropping thing. I mean, just like, wow, I can't believe so out of character. But it wasn't their first crime. There were lots of things they had to do to get to the place where they are in Luke 23 having Jesus crucified. There's a million second chances, if you will, to turn back from this path that you're on so that you wouldn't become the party responsible for crucifying Christ. We can imagine what a lot of those were. I mean, just going back to some of the the rebellious acts in their lives that would lead to that kind of opposition to the very one that they've been teaching and studying about in the Bible. And there are even some you don't have to imagine because they're spelled out for us in Scripture. 
There's really two built into the first five verses of Luke 23, and I want you to look at those this morning. Two things that should have been like this, don't go here sign. Don't go any further. I know you don't like him. I know you're jealous. I know he's got big crowds and all the rest. He's offended you with this issue, but don't be against him. At least don't send him to a a Roman execution rack. And the first one is, as you read this, is that they even had to go to the Roman authorities. Now, again, historically, let's just remind you, the Jewish people at this time were under the hand of Rome, and Rome was trying to supervise them from many, many miles away by having local governors. First, they started with the Herods, and that wasn't working out too well. So in 26 AD, they put Pilate, Pontius Pilate, this guy that we know since our Sunday school days, he is the Roman prefect or the Roman governor of Judea in the south where Jerusalem is, where Jesus is about to be crucified. And that particular Roman authority had to sign off on capital offenses. Yeah, the legislative body of the Sanhedrin, that 70 group of high priests and chief priests and elders and scribes, yeah, they had authority, but they only had authority within a certain jurisdiction. And that high priest that made the 71st member of that council, he, he could decide things and he could pass judgment. But when it came down to it, if you wanted to have someone executed for something, you had to go to the Roman authorities. Now think about that. This is something you could get your pals to agree to. But now you've got to go to Romans who don't really care much about the details of your Jewish law. I mean, they don't want to sit here and dispute blasphemy laws. And you're going to have to go now and get them to sign off so that you can somehow legally justify his execution. And then, I don't know if you know it or not, but it's not a simple take him to Pilate and Pilate goes, okay, you guys want to crucify him? Go ahead, crucify him. If you know the story of Pilate, and we get the first encounter with Pilate here in the first five verses, in essence, he ends up saying, nah, don't do this, guys. Don't do this. You want another sign that says turn back? Don't be notorious sinners that are going to be responsible for crucifying Christ. You got two built into this passage. So let's read it together. Let's look in this text, and let's learn from it this morning as we see the Sanhedrin going through continual restraints, moral restraints, if you will, of sin, and they break right through them. Number one, verse one, Luke chapter 23, the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. Let's get the pronouns right. Them is all those folks described in verses 66 and 67 of Luke 22, if you glance up there. The whole assembly of the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, the council, they're going to have that little trial there after they had Annas The previous high priest who still had a lot of sway among the Jews, that's why he's even consulted. And then we have Caiaphas in his family. He's the presiding high priest. And then you have the morning arrives. They can actually have a meeting of the Sanhedrin. And now they hear the blasphemy. And now they say, well, we got to get Pilate to sign off. So they, they bring him to Pilate there in Jerusalem, early morning session. And they, that is the group that wanted to see Pilate give Jesus a thumbs down so they could go have him crucified, They began to accuse him. Here's our case, and we get a summary of what they say. Three things they're going to say here. Number one, we found this man misleading our nation, which is, on the surface, not all that convincing. Okay, you got issues with your nation. Okay, if you mislead, I mean, probably a lot to that, but that's the summation of the the first reason. Second reason, he's forbidding us to give tribute or taxes to Caesar. Okay, well, we think that should get Pilate's attention. He represents the Roman Empire, and... Certainly he wants everyone to pay Roman taxes. And he's saying that he himself is Christ, this Messiah figure, who, by the way, in our theology, is king. He's a king, you know. And there is only one king here in Rome's economy, in Rome's politics, and that's the emperor, Tiberius. So this should bother you, Pilate. So Pilate has a hearing. And this is the first hearing of Jesus before Pilate. And he asks him, 
Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered and he said, you have said so. Now again, this is a seemingly odd way to put it. And though I can tell you, as I said last time, as Jesus responded to Caiaphas, there is an idiomatic sense to this in which the idiom is a, is a confession. Of course, yes, you're right. You've said it. That's what you've said. He's not saying he's not. He's saying he is. And yet there is that weird kind of sense in how he says this that gives us some insight into the fact that what Pilate thinks about what that means and what Jesus thinks about what that these are two different things. Nevertheless, he's saying, yes, I am. And Pilate, verse 4, said to the chief priests in the crowds, this again, probably much more than two simple sentences that you could read in, in three seconds. Pilate says, I find no guilt in this man. So whatever exchange they had beyond this, and we see some in Matthew and Mark and John, we recognize his conclusion is, hey, hey, guys, you want to kill him? Nah, there's no reason to kill him. I'm not going to sign off on it. And they doubled down, verse 5. And they were urgent. Now they're really out. I mean, now their veins are popping out in their neck and forehead. Hey, this guy stirs up the people. He's teaching throughout all Judea and Galilee, even to this place. So down south, this whole region, up north in Galilee, and even to this place on the Temple Mount. He just tipped over some tables this week on the Temple Mount. This guy's trouble. He's causing problems. We don't like him. Let us crucify him. And because he mentioned Galilee, he ends up sending him in verse 6. We'll look at this next time we're together to Herod, who happens to be in town. Verses 1 through 5, I think, will be helpful for us to analyze and look at it as a template. As uncomfortable as it is for your pastor to suggest that you identify this morning with the wicked Sanhedrin, I would ask you to identify with the wicked Sanhedrin this morning and say to yourself, is there anything in this example of what they did, of kind of bursting through these restraints to move toward their sin and being just bullheaded about, is there anything I see in my life that kind of parallels that? Now, I understand it's an extreme example. It's an extreme example. But I would like you this morning to learn from that because as 1 Corinthians 10 says, some of these evil people in the Bible become examples, bad examples for us so that we will learn not to crave the evil things that they crave. And so we got to look and kind of analyze what they're doing and kind of say, hey, if I parallel it, I want to make sure that's not a part of what's going on in my life. And by God's grace, hopefully we can leave this morning much more apt, as Paul put it, to the Ephesians to make sure that we've done everything to stand firm in that evil day because there's going to be those days of temptation there's going to be those days when we're tempted to do things that are not right and we want to do everything we can to stand firm and to hold up underneath that temptation and so this morning if we can learn from them slip yourself into the sandals of the Sanhedrin and let us recognize that we can do the same things that they do perhaps we see as Christians on a much lesser scale but let's make sure we understand the problem well, that may sound weird because if you look at your outline, the first word in point one that I provided for you is the word appreciate. What am I supposed to appreciate about this? Well, let's appreciate this, that there was a hoop to jump through. There was a barrier. There was a hurdle. There was some kind of, of restraint upon the fact that they weren't just to wake up one day and say, let's kill this guy. Oh, you want to kill someone? Go kill him. No, you've got lawful authority that you've got to answer to. And that lawful authority is going to be a barrier. You're going to have to work to get your sinful thing accomplished by going through that lawful authority. So let's just put it this way. That's one of many things that I'm sure was a part of the kind of the, as I put it, the moral baby proofing of these guys that God put in place so that they would not do this. 
And I think you can look in your life and my life and say, there are many things that God puts in place in my life that makes it harder for me to sin. That if those things weren't there, it'd be easier for me to sin. But there are things in place that may be irritating to me, but they're there because God has put restraints upon sinful behavior. So number one, let's put it this way. You and I should appreciate God's restraints on sin. He puts restraints on them. And by that, I mean, there are things that he puts there to make it harder for you to sin. And to compare yourself now, something much cuter than the Sanhedrin, compare yourself to the little kid that you had when you brought home from the hospital. And all of a sudden now you say, well, I got to get, once this blob starts to crawl, I got to get ready to make sure that his pea brain in that little skull of his is not directing himself into foolish and harmful things. So I need to baby proof my house. There's a lot of things that could go wrong here because he's just so dumb. Anything he sees that he thinks is shiny or colorful, he's going to pop that in his mouth. It doesn't matter if it's a t- Tide Pod for the, in the laundry room. It doesn't matter if it's my, my medicine that I left out on the counter. It doesn't, it doesn't matter if it's, it's, it's Comet. You know, he wants to eat the Comet. Under the, we got to make sure we baby-proof our house. So you put up things, starting with putting them in a cage in his room. It's called a crib. I'm not against them. I'm all for them. But you put them in a cage. I don't want them to get out. And then as they start getting good, you realize pretty soon, it doesn't take long until they start figuring out how to get out of that. And then you put up one of those little, uh, like, nursery gates, like you do for your dog. You put one of those up for your kid. Got to keep him in that room. And then you put little things on the, on the cupboard so he doesn't get in under the, the, the sink and, and drink your Drano and all that. So, you know, it's all these things you do that make life harder for him. Harder for him for what? To not hurt himself. You don't want him sticking his little tiny finger into the, into the socket. So what do you do? You buy these little plastic things and you stick them on the, on the outlet so you can baby-proof that outlet. You don't want to, you want to make it harder. You learn that their little chubby fingers can peel that thing off in time, but it makes it harder. That's the baby-proofing that any loving parent puts out there in some way to make it tougher for a a foolish, brainless person that is going to do things to their own hurt. You're trying to keep them from that. Make it harder. God's put a a lot of things in in the order of of your life and mine. Just like he did with the Sanhedrin. You just can't haul off and execute anybody you want. You got to go to the lawful authorities. And let's think about this. You got lawful authorities in your life, don't you? That make it a little bit harder for you to do whatever your craving sinful thing is that you want to do. I mean, you got to think twice because there are some people that won't approve of that and there's some rules and regulations and policies. It's harder for you, I think, at work to embezzle money from your, your work because there's policies and procedures and safeguards in place. And all those things are put there, of course, because they're trying to keep people from doing bad things. There's laws on the books, things you're not supposed to do. You may feel like doing, but you shouldn't do those. And so there's rules to keep you from that. And those rules, they come with consequences and punishments and all of that lawful authority that you're under that makes us feel like, oh, I, don't, I just wish we didn't have all these rules. wish we didn't have all these authorities. I wish I were in charge. I really wish I were the captain of my own fate and the master of my own soul. No, I live in a world under authority with a lot of things that I can't do the way I want to do them because I'm not a free-range kind of individual autonomous. I have safeguards in place. Now, they're not foolproof, of course, but they are there, and it does make it a little more difficult, and that's a good thing. Lawful authority, the law themselves, have you had non-Christians tell you, you Christians want to legislate morality. You shouldn't be legislating morality. That's the, one of the dumbest statements that your non-Christian friends tell you. Because law, by definition, you understand, is the division and distinction between what is right and what is wrong. That is, that is by definition, what morality is. Justice, the concept of justice in the law code is all about defining what is good, what is bad, what is harmful, what is appropriate, what should be punished, as Romans 13 puts it, and what should be rewarded or allowed or permitted. That, that's what the law is. By the way, and I don't have all the room on the back to always put all the books that are pertinent. I should have put this one, I suppose. Frank Turek and 
and Norm Geisler wrote a book in, I think, in 2009 called Legislating Morality. That's a provocative title for people who think that's ridiculous. That's a good book to read. It's well-written, very good, helpful. That's the whole point of rules is to legislate morality. That's the point. Even non-Christians have to at some point, if they logically think about it, have to admit that's what the rules are there for. That's certainly what is the law in Scripture. Think of the law, for instance, in Deuteronomy. I think I jotted down the passage. Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 8. Don't turn there, but Deuteronomy 22, 8 talks about a building code requirement, which you and I hate. I do hate. Well, I don't know what you hate, unless you're a building inspector or something. You probably love them, but we hate them. We go through the TIs, the tenant improvements, or the construction, and I kind of get frustrated, and I'll even say dumb things like, well, you know, if the founding fathers could see the law codes and the building codes, they'd go crazy. But I realize they're there, much like Deuteronomy 22.8 is there, for good reason. And in that passage, it says everyone in the ancient world, they didn't have air conditioning, but they did have a roof, and they would go up on the roof in the afternoons, they'd put up shades up there and sails up there, they'd sit under them and cool off in the afternoon. So if you had a roof of a home, everyone had stairs to get up there. And it says this, in, when you build your house on that roof, you've got you've to put up, now the ESV translates, translates it parapet. If, I guess if you're an architect, you know that word. But if not, it's a railing. Put a railing around your roof. Lest, I'll read it for you. Listen how firm this is. Lest you bring guilt of blood upon your house if anyone should fall from your roof. So here's a, here's a building code. And the point is, this is something that you're obligated to do that makes you harder of creating something that is a hazard that ends up making you a manslaughter, at least in some secondary sense, because you were really negligent in providing a safe environment for your guests. Stuff like that. I'm just saying there's a lot of stuff we hate with our sinful desire to be completely autonomous without any authority. But those things that feel like strictures upon us, even though we're always saying we want to break the bonds and be free, certainly in our society, you need to know that those things, they're not always perfect. They don't always reflect the the, the perfect law of God. I realize Romans 13 isn't perfectly reflected in any society. But I recognize this. They're there so that God is putting upon all of us as morally dangerous and hazardous individuals to try and keep it at least under control that we would make it much more difficult for us to engage in some kind of sinful behavior this afternoon. I appreciate God's restraints on sin. You've got to appreciate the fact that sin is corrupting. And just like babies popping anything in their mouths that seems colorful and attractive, so it is that if we sow to the flesh, we reap from the flesh corruption. We've got to realize God is trying to not only honor himself by us being holy because he's holy, but also trying to keep us from the self-harm that often comes by us indulging in our own sins. So whether it's lawful authority, the laws themselves, or even the law within our conscience that makes us feel guilty. Some of us like say, I'd like it if I didn't ever feel guilty. No, you need that. That's God, another one of God's moral restraints against you doing the wrong thing. Even lawful peer pressure, if you will, within the church whether it's church discipline or just the disapproval of your small group, when you go and confess that you've done some egregious sinful thing this week, that is all there. The shame of that, the guilt of that is there to keep you from being unfettered in your pursuit of whatever sinful thing that you might do. So I'm grateful for God's restraints on sin. And in a fallen world, it may not be comfortable, but we should be grateful that God's looking out for us, whether it be In this case, that in the first century, the Sanhedrin had to have the Romans sign off. That was just another safeguard against them just doing whatever they wanted. In verse 2, it says, They began to accuse him now that they brought them before the powers that be and said, We found this man misleading our nation, number one. We found this man forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, number two. And number three, he's saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Number three, all of those were designed and even stated, and the way they were stated, to make Pilate go, oh, man, you better kill this guy then. 
That was their point. But if you look at all three of those and you think back even to Luke chapter 20, let's start with the middle one, forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar. If you've been around long enough in our study of Luke, you recognize this. Didn't he just deal with that? They came to him, tried to trap him, to get him to say that he shouldn't give tribute or taxes to Caesar. And he said, give me a coin. And someone handed him a coin that had Tiberius on it, the emperor. And he said to the crowd, okay, here's, here's the coin. You're talking about giving these to the government? Whose, whose inscription and likeness is, is it on it? Oh, it's the emperor? Well, give to the emperor. Give to Caesar what's Caesar's. But give to God what's God's. Now, that was a crafty and careful and shrewd way to respond to the question. But here we are, made in the image of God. We're supposed to give our God our complete loyalty. His image is stamped upon us. The image of Caesar stamped upon the coins. Hey, give him the money that he's asking for. And you give your life and your heart to God. It was a great response. So he said exactly the opposite of what they're saying. We call that when someone says the exact opposite, at least if we understand truth and correspondence with reality and foundationalism, we say that's a lie. That's a lie. He did not say you cannot give tribute to Caesar. Matter of fact, he said just the opposite. Not to mention, look at the first line. We found this man misleading our, our nation. You might even remember the way they set up the conversation. When they came to Jesus asking him about taxes, they started with this line. Teacher, we know that you speak the truth rightly and show no partiality, but you teach truly the way of God. That's how they set it up. Now, that may have been facetious. That might have been something they didn't believe. But they said that because they knew that's what the crowd knew about Christ. They knew that is Christ. Christ is teaching the way of God rightly. There was nothing they could say about him that was misleading anyone. They knew that. Matter of fact, at one point, Jesus looked at his critics and he said, for what good work are you picking up stones to kill me? Why do you want to execute? What's the bad thing I've done? He's asking them, what is it that I've done? I mean, there's nothing in him misleading the nation. He was the light that was to dawn on the nation of Israel, leading him in the way of Christ, of the way of of God, rather, the way of the Lord. All of that, without any contradistinction to anything in the record, shows us that he wasn't misleading the nation. He was leading the nation in righteousness. And he was telling them, pay taxes to Caesar. Now, what's the last one that ends up being the question that Pilate picks up on? It's at least the one that's recorded for us from Luke. But saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Now, they said it that way because they knew if they could pin him as an insurrectionist, there's one thing about Rome. They don't want anybody being an insurrectionist or trying to have some kind of political coup in some corner of the Roman Empire. So they thought, if we can put it that way, we know that Pilate is going to agree with us. But of course, they knew enough about Jesus' teaching that that's not at all what he was trying to be. He wasn't collecting a posse with riches to set up a palace and a rival capital. He was, foxes have holes, birds of the air have, son of man, I don't even have a place to live. This guy was not a political threat. And yet that's how they posited this. He's a political threat to you. So look at all three of those. I can tell you this. I guarantee you with everything that's in the text, all three of these are lies. Now, is he the Christ? Of course he's the Christ, but he's not the kind of king they're implying. So all of these are deceptive. Now, here's a question for you. Do you think they believed all these things? And I'm thinking, I don't know. Knowing the fallenness of my own life when I'm trying to break through the restraints of my own moral barriers and hurdles, when I'm really set on doing whatever my flesh wants to do, I know this. When it comes to me saying those things in my own mind, I start to believe those things. I mean, I'm tempted to believe my own lies just so I can break through another level of moral restraint to kind of have the satisfaction somehow in my life by doing the sinful thing I want to do. That 
I think is the kind of analyzation we need to have in our own lives when we face our own temptations. Number two, I'll put it this way. You need to consider the lies that we tell ourselves. Whether or not they saw this as an out-and-out lie or whether they started to believe their own pitch to the judge, they were saying things that were not true, and I know this, we say things that are not true. Even if we don't believe them, we lie to ourselves so that we can do the sinful thing we're craving. And that's where you got to start with your own sin. Now we're going to start to meddle a little bit in the sermon. You need to think about the sinful temptations that you face. And I want you to think about the way that you engage in, here's a word for you, the irrationality of wanting sin that you know, you know, it's not only not good, it's not good for you. You know that. You know how you're going to feel on the other side of that. You so desperately want to share that. And so you're going to guise it under a prayer request. But it's nothing but slander and gossip. You're going to say it anyway. But you know, as you're gearing up to say it, you know the bad feeling you're going to have on the other side. You've got some lust of the flesh. I just, if I can just say this about the whole temptation, I can justify why I do this. And you engage in that kind of self-deception. There's a lot of lying that goes on when it comes to our sin. Let's put it this way, as Hebrews 3 puts it. There is a, I love the phrase, it's helpful, the deceitfulness of sin. We know that every hook, if you will, of transgression that we are going to get snagged on, it's always got bait on it, does it not? It's got something that baits it. And we sit there and say, I know that's not right. I can see the glimmer of the barb on that hook, but I'm looking at it, and here's all the reasons I want to bite down on it anyway. And we lie to ourselves. The deceitfulness of sin. You want to go back to the very first sin, we know this. It didn't happen without some external pressure. And though I can say you and I can fall into sin this afternoon without any external pressure, I do know that a lot of our sin doesn't happen without external pressure. And I don't mean the external external pressure from people that you can see. I'm talking about the things you cannot see. The Bible's very clear about this. There's a spiritual battle going on in our lives. And Eve did not reach out to pick that fruit off the tree that she knew in her mind. Here's Here's the truth. She knew in her mind that God said, don't do it. And she knew God was good. And she knew God had his best intention for her and Adam. But she was listening to lies. And she started to believe the lies. If not, she at least told herself those lies that justified when she said, it looks good, I want it. It looks like it's going to be good for food. It's going to taste good, I want it. It's going to make me wise, I want it. And she bought the lies, or at least used the lies, to step across this this threshold of transgression. And she dug into that thing, and we do the same thing. No one really, I think, ever gets involved in sin. Certainly not to the next level of sin in our descent into some kind of notorious sin. It doesn't happen without us lying to ourselves. When Jesus was talking about sin in John chapter 8, he sat there with these leaders and he said, Why don't you get what I'm saying to you? This is John chapter 8, verse 43. It's because you cannot bear to hear my words. It's a moral issue for you. You can't handle it. And he said, here's the problem. You're believing lies. And it talks now about in the text, it talks about Satan being a liar and the father of lies. And whenever he lies, he speaks his own native language because no one is really going to step across the threshold of sin with conscience and moral law and godly peer pressure and the clear precepts of God's word. We're not going to do that without believing some kind of lie. And all I need to tell you and remind you of is that's always a part of our failure and our falling into sin. Please recognize the deceitfulness of sin and the deceiver that's behind those sins and get serious about the fact that you and I, the same things that the Pharisees did here, the Sanhedrin in verse 2, in trying to justify my sin. 
It's no big deal. It won't matter. God will forgive me. I deserve it. I've had a hard day, a hard life, a hard whatever. He's not fair. She was mean to me. Whatever you're saying to try and justify this, analyze those statements and start to apply some truth to that. How can a young man keep his way pure? Keeping according to your word. I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. The truth is the antidote. The truth. And that has to be in our minds, in our brains. You need to put it on on sticky notes and stick it in places that will remind you in places and and context of temptation and say, I'm going to remember the truth when I'm tempted because I know the strategies to get me to believe a lie. Verse 3. Luke chapter 23. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he said, You've said so. And Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. Okay, there's a five-second summary of the first round with Pilate, and he says, ah, I, don't, I, don't know, I don't think he's guilty. I want to step out from the Sanhedrin for a second and just look at God dealing with Pilate, which may not seem all that remarkable to you unless you know the extra-biblical history of Pilate. So much about Pilate in extra-biblical history, let's t- take two historians, Philo and Josephus, both of these early historians in the first century. Both of them describe Pontius Pilate, the prefect of Judea, as a cruel, oppressive, unreasonable man who just was ready to drop the hammer on anybody for any reason. That's the kind of guy he was. That's how he's described. He reigns from 26 AD to 36 AD, right in this period of time, obviously, and he's a cruel, mean, kind of despotic governor. If you think that this is a reasonable thing. I'd probably do the same. I don't know. These guys look jealous and angry. They want me to sign off on the crucifixion. I don't think I'm going to sign off on that. That might be what you would do, but that's not what we would expect from Pilate. If you really know him from a historical perspective, you're going to think, I can't believe he didn't say, you want to crucify this guy? Great. Hey, you got a halfway decent excuse for that? I'll sign off on that. He claims to be a king. Great. We don't need any other kings except for the emperor. Kill him. That's not what he does. Matter of fact, he seems to go to great lengths to try and get out of this. Remember Barabbas? We're going to talk about this in, in two weeks. He now has to pull out the worst possible criminal he's got to say, okay, let's follow this pattern of saying let's release someone. He's trying desperately to get them to get off of Jesus's case. And if you know the parallel passage in Matthew, you might remember that even God works, it seems, through Pilate's wife and giving her some tormenting dream that she comes to work Pilate's office and says, hey, Pilate, have nothing to do with this guy, this righteous man. In other words, no thumbs down on him, man. Stay away. Keep your hands clean from this. Pilate is is conflicted. Pilate is vacillating. Pilate is trying to skirt responsibility. Pilate seems to be, I mean, you almost have great sympathy for Pilate, like he's trying to be a good guy here. But you need to know he wasn't a good guy. He wasn't known as a good guy. He's known as a cruel guy. And you see in this God working with a guy that if he were just to be himself, would have been a whole lot worse than we find him to be in this passage. Now, in the end, he gives the thumbs down to Christ. He's a bad guy. He's culpable. It's not good. I get it. He's a bad guy. But it sure is interesting that it took a long time for him to get there. Why? Because not only did God have restraints in place for him in his own conscience and even in this dream that his wife had, but you know what? God was being gracious and patient with him. In other words, God could have said, yeah, you know what? You're just the right guy to condemn my son. So I'm going to make sure you do that drop of a hat. You're going to incur all the punishment of that kind of hair trigger against Christ. No, he doesn't do that. God works with him. God continues to try and get him to, to back off. Number three, I'll put it this way. You and I need to appreciate God's restraint towards sinners. 
God is seeing sinners. And while every single one of them deserves to pile up as much sin on the, on the heap of their sin and reach as, as the maximum judgment at the end of time, God continues to show patience. He works with sinners. He restrains their sin. And in restraining their sin, he's restraining his judgment on them. God is patient, is he not? I know the things about the world we hate is if God is so good, why is he allowing all this terrible stuff in the world? You understand that if God didn't allow all this terrible stuff in the world, none of us would be around to contemplate the problem. You, you get that, right? Why? Because you're less than God in terms of your holiness. All of us fall short of the glory of God. If God was not patient, if he wasn't patient, then yeah, we could have a fantastic society. Problem is none of us would be a part of it because we're all sinners. There's the problem. And when it comes to God giving grace to people, and by that I mean giving them time, and the Bible tells us why he gives them time. He gives them time, Second Peter chapter 3, so that they might come to repentance. Why is it that he said, hey, this world, every thought and intention of their heart is only continually evil. This is Genesis 6 now, so I'm going to destroy it. I'm not going to sit here and continue to put up with this, but I'll give them 120 years. What? Look how incredibly patient God is with sinners. God is patient with this world. He was patient with the ancient world before the flood. Matter of fact, some of the greatest, strongest statements about God putting up with things comes when he speaks of the pre-Diluvian world, that world before the flood. And it is so corrupt, but he continues and continues to be gracious. Now, it's a kind of grace that results in a really wicked, corrupt society. And you and I complain about our wicked and corrupt society. But you know why it's wicked and corrupt? Because God keeps waiting. He keeps patiently waiting. The word that translates patience most of the time in the New Testament. There's two words, actually. Let me give you the first one, which you know. Hupomene. That is the picture of endurance. Hupomene. And we only say that as a Greek word because it has two great components. Hupo underneath, mene to remain. Meno, to remain. That's one word. God's got a lot, if you will, to speak humanly about God. Right? I understand just for the sake of illustration. The weight of bearing a sinful world is a lot, but he bears up under it. He's long-suffering in that regard. But as long as I'm using that antiquated word, long-suffering, let me give you the other word that translates patient. It's the word macrothumia. Macro, not micro, macro. Macro means a lot. Thumia, thumus in Greek, is the word for heat or fire, that concept of something heated up, which, of course, analogizes anger, long anger. It doesn't mean he has a long period of anger. It's a long period. It's a long buffer until he gets angry. He's long-suffering. He'll suffer a long time before his anger explodes. God is a patient God. And he's a patient God with people that are provoking him to anger and justice. But God holds off. He's very patient. I tell the illustration and often about me as a kid and messing around and my older brother and a lot of bad stuff. And my dad would come home from work and after dinner maybe lie on the couch and relax. And we would be sitting there goofing around. Dad would say, stop that. Don't throw the ball. Stop yelling. Whatever we were doing. And of course, you'd, as long as dad was laying on the couch, you'd kind of press him a little bit. And what you'd be doing, you're testing his patience at that point. And there is a point you recognize that what you're doing is nothing other than really stretching this patience of your father. That's macrothumia. The longer he lays on the couch, the more patient a father you have, even though you're completely disobeying him and rebelling against him. That's a picture of a God right now who continues, if you will, as human as an illustration this is, laying on the couch saying, you know what? I know it's bad. I know it's wrong. I've said I'm going to deal with it, but let's just give him more time to get this right. That's a humanistic way to look at this, I realize. But that is the picture from 2 Peter chapter 3. And it's a God that is constantly referred to as a God that's putting up with us. And by the way, it's not just non-Christians he puts up with. It's Christians he puts up with. You remember that statement in Luke? Let me give you the passage if I can remember it here. Here it is. Luke chapter 9. 
That was a long time ago. Luke chapter 9, when Christ is speaking to his generation and his disciples are included in this example, he says, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? How long am I have to put up with you? He says that to his own children. Just like in the wilderness wanderings, when it says, as Stephen gives that great sermon in, in, in Acts chapter 13, and he, uh, I just love the way he puts it. Here it is. For 40 years, God put up with his people in the wilderness. Put up with them. I just want to say that you and I need to recognize that God, if he were to be the God of justice, immediate justice, we'd have a whole different experience on this planet than we have right now, and you ought to be thankful for that. God is patient with sinners. He's patient with our world. He's patient toward you. We read a great passage this morning in our daily Bible reading. Hopefully you're keeping up with us. If not, jump on today and start in 1 Timothy 1, because that's our passage for today in the New Testament. And Paul said this, I received mercy. I received mercy. Who are you? You're the persecutor of the church. You were a terrible opposition, an executor of Christians. And he says, but God was patient with me and I received mercy so that as the foremost of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his perfect patience. There's the word macrothemia, the perfect patience as an example to you and me, to those who would believe on him for eternal life. The point is this. You and I ought to be grateful for the fact that God is a long-suffering, merciful God who loves us so much, he oftentimes will give us time to get things right. And it may be, as I talk about temptation, and you identify specific temptations in your life, maybe some barriers of restraint that you're stepping through, and you say this, it has, nothing bad's happened yet. Well, it's only because of God's patience. God is a very patient God in this words of Psalm 86, 15, you, O Lord, our God, are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger. There's kind of the Hebrew expression of the one Greek word, macrothemia, you're slow to get angry, abounding in steadfast love. There's a whole other sermon there on the fact that if God is that way toward us as sinners, we ought to be that way toward other people, but I don't have time for that sermon. But it's a good little point maybe to discuss in your small groups this week. God is very patient with Pilate. We'll see the other side of this as Pilate ends up being persuaded to have Jesus crucified. But for now, hey, round one, he says, no, he's not guilty. But as I said, verse five, look at it, chapter 23, verse five, but they were urgent. But, man, they were urgent. They doubled down. They said, he stirs up the people. I don't know what all was involved in that argument, but you know what? It's not good. We don't like him. He's teaching all throughout Judea, getting people all upset, and in Galilee up north, and even here to Jerusalem. He's just a mess. Please have him crucified. Can you sign this execution order, please? Please. We don't like him, and we want you to agree with us. It's one thing when God patiently endures either non-Christians who think they have all the time in the world, or even us as we continue in sin when we know we shouldn't and we need to repent But I'll tell you what, that ought to be a very scary thing for us, and we ought to think of it this way. Number four, never presume upon God's patience. I pulled that right out of Romans chapter 2, verse 4, by the way. Never presume upon the patience of God. Romans chapter 2, verse 4 says, don't presume upon the riches of his kindness, his forbearance, that's another great biblical word, or his patience, knowing that this kindness, the reason he hasn't gotten off of the couch yet is that he wants to lead you to repentance. He wants to continue to persuade you. He wants your conscience to work, the authority, the lawful peer pressure, the rules. He wants you to stop, stop. Talk about second chances. Please, would you not crucify him? I mean, humanly speaking, that's what should be going on here. You can't get it signed off on. Don't do it. Don't double down on this. Never presume upon the patience of God. Let me get very specific with you that you're not a Christian here this morning. You think, well, I don't know. I'm not the kind of Christian you guys are talking about at least, and I kind of want to run my own life. And matter of fact, that's the number one thing that people tell me. 
share the gospel with him, and it comes down to it, I want to be in charge of my own life. Maybe I can find a church where God, you know, is my co-pilot. That'll be a good place. But you guys seem to think God needs to be the pilot. I don't like that stuff. Well, that's because we're teaching the Bible here. And when it comes to what God wants to be, it's the only thing he will be. If he's going to enter your life, he's going to be in charge. He's the Lord of all. But some people say, well, if that's the way it is, I'll invite him in the cockpit at the end of my life. I hear it all the time. Just kind of want to be in charge a little bit longer. And some people are bold enough to say, particularly young people like to say, well, when I'm just at the end of my life, if you're telling me I can get right with God, he'll forgive all my sins, can I wait till the very end? And my answer is no, you really can't. Why? Because what you're doing is presuming upon the patience of God. Don't presume upon the patience of God. Let me give you two reasons why. Number one, because there's something in Romans chapter one that says God will turn you over to your sin. At some point, you will try his patience long enough where he'll say, fine. And he will get off the couch, so to speak, and walk out the door. He'll be done. But he'll be done with a passivity toward you. Now think about that. The only reason you're ever considering becoming a Christian, non-Christians in the room, is because of the pressure the Spirit of God is putting upon you. That's the pressure you feel. And at some point, when God says, all right, he says it three times in Romans 1, I'll turn him over, I'll turn him over, I'll turn him over. You want to continue to break through the moral restraints? He'll say, fine, great, fine. It's like someone with a, a, a fence and then a barbed wire and then bars on the window and they're trying to keep you from breaking in but at some point hey you're gonna break in fine take the bars off the window just come on in you want to do it do it i'll turn you over to your sin but you're going to reap all the stuff that comes with that and if you think you can become a christian on your deathbed when you're 80 years old sorry there'll be zero pressure from the holy spirit at that point he'll turn you over that's the threat in Romans chapter 1, which means, as it says throughout the book of Hebrews, today is the day. You feel the pressure of the Spirit of God to repent and become a Christian? Today is the day. Don't wait. You presume upon God's patience, it could be over. It could be over just in the sense that you'll continue to live. You might have a great life. You'll be the pilot till the end. You may be successful, relatively healthy till you die. You might be economically comfortable. You'll get all the stuff you want, except for the fact that you'll be the fool that Jesus taught about after his life is over you got silos filled with stuff but you're going nowhere what would a man give in exchange for his soul that's a ridiculous talk about the irrationality of sin what a fool to gain the whole world but forfeit your soul number two it may not come with the fact that you just live your life out you may not live your life out and not just because you might die of a heart attack which i guess is still an opportunity it's a small opportunity small chance that that'll happen humanly speaking But I know one thing that's absolutely certain. At some point, the Bible says all the opportunities are going to be done because he's going to come back like a thief in the night. While people are saying everything's copacetic, peaceful, secure, then sudden destruction will come upon them like labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. And that's a good parallel concept of what Jesus taught in Luke 21, which says it's going to be like a trap. The the coming of the Lord, like a trap. If you want to tie all this together, think more specifically and detailed in your eschatology. Think of it this way. It says to the Thessalonians, those that believe the lie, they don't like the truth, they don't love the truth, they don't obey the truth. When it comes to the fact that if my eschatology is right, the church is taken and the hell breaks loose that's all spoken of in First and Second Thessalonians, people will get saved, but it's going to be the people that are not sitting in churches today. It's not going to be the people that have had the call of the Spirit on their lives because they said no one too many times. And then God's eschatological plan will unfold and there'll be no more opportunities. Non-Christians, you need to not try or presume upon the patience of God because he may turn you over to your disobedience or he may close the door of mercy, much like the door shut on the ark. You may have your feet still on the ground, but there's no getting in. 
when God says the door is closing and it's going to start to rain. And Christians can say, oh, yeah, get him, Pastor Mike. Your turn. Christians, we do the same thing. Oh, we're not rejecting Christ as our Lord or our Savior, but you're toying around with sin and temptation. You know there's things in your life right now that you need to deal with. And you're continuing to listen to the lies and you're saying, I don't want to deal with that temptation. I don't want to deal with that sin. I kind of like my sin. It's my secret sin, my private sin. No one sees it. No one knows it. I'm just going to continue. I deserve it. God will forgive me. Whatever your excuses are. And I am saying, isn't it great that God is patient with you and he hadn't zapped you? That's great. Let me tell you this. Do not presume upon the patience of God. Don't presume upon the patience of God. Because here's the thing about dad. The creator might get off the couch and walk out the room to the non-Christians. I get that. But when it comes to you as a child of God, your father will get off the couch, Hebrews 12 says, and he will incur discipline in your life. He will actively put something in your life that will be painful. Here's how it's put. It's painful. It's not pleasant. All because like a child that's being disciplined or chastised by his father, so the father chastises every child that he receives. If you're going to be rebellious against God, I guarantee you, the first time you do that, there may be no immediate consequence. But you're not working on the first time, are you? That temptation, that falling into sin, you've got to say, I've got to get serious about that. If my hand causes me sin, cut it off. I can't do it. my eye causes me sin, gouge it out. Because one too many times, dad gets off the couch and his patience is up and he's going to deal with you. Not as a judge that casts people into hell, but as a father who's going to discipline and purify his kids. Okay, well, I'm tough. I can take it. I can take the spiritual spanking from God. You're not going to say that. Because there's another aspect to it. Let me give you this one from Numbers chapter 14. In Numbers chapter 14, if you know your Old Testament, I taught you this in Old Testament survey. You got to remember Numbers 14. It was when they were tested at Kadesh Barnea. They were at the front of the promised land. They should have gone in. They left Egypt and God has them send in the 12 spies. They come back. 10 of them say, no, we can't do it. Two of them, Joshua and Caleb say, we can They said no. Well, they'd said no to God a lot, but that was it. God got off the couch and said, we're done. And the one thing he said is, you're not going into the promised land. To quote the book of Hebrews, in my wrath, my anger, I swore to them, you will not enter my rest. Now, did he ditch them into the Red Sea? No, that was what he did with the Egyptians. What did he do? He led them through the wilderness, gave them manna to eat, gave them quail to eat, made sure their sandals didn't wear out. Pillar of fire by night, cloud of smoke by day, led them. Moses, still their pastor, still their leader. All that worked out great. But what about the promised land? That's what they really wanted. Let me say this. Even if you think you can tough out the spiritual discipline that God gives you, you're going to forfeit benefits and blessings in your life. Think about that. Because in Numbers 14, you may not know this, but at the end of that, Numbers 14, we often think about the, the test at Kadesh Barnea. At the end of that passage, it says a group of them came to Moses and said, we're sorry, we're sorry, we sinned. We should have believed you. We want to go in now. Let's go. Let's take up arms and fight against the Canaanites. Let's take the promised land. And Moses go, what are you doing? We're done. God said, you're not going in. Can you get right with God? Sure. Will he forgive you? Yes. You confess your sins and be forgiven? Sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. Get right with God. But can we go to the promised land? Nope, can't go to the promised land. Remind you of Nathan in front of David. When David finally sees in his sexual sin, yes, I was wrong. I want to be forgiven. And God says, you can be forgiven, but the mess you caused, it's going to stay. As a matter of fact, it's going to start with the grievous pain of you losing this child. And and that child that, that you conceive will die. And then the sin you're going to see in your kids and your grandkids, sexual sin because of this, well, put your crash helmet on. Here it comes. Well, you don't love me? No, I love you. I forgive you. I forgive you. 
All I'm saying is you can forfeit things in your spiritual life because you test the patience of God. Don't test the patience of God. Well, that doesn't help if you're looking back in the rearview mirror. This sermon is not about your past. It's about your future. The reason I'm giving you this sermon today, I say this with the authority of Scripture, is because all we can deal with is what lies ahead. And I'm concerned about what you would do on Thursday without this sermon. I'm concerned what you would do next month without this sermon. I need you to take this sermon and say, this is the sermon I want to take to heart so that I don't break through another barrier of moral restraint. I want to see the sin and not get as close to the edge as I can. I want to get as far away from it as I can. And I want to make sure that I don't any longer test God's patience. I want to repent. I want to repent now. Because I know that this sin can lead to the next sin and the next sin. And then eventually people are going to drop their jaw and say, I can't believe that he or she did that. Repent now. God is a gracious God. Listen to this. Psalm 78, verse 37 through 39. Their heart was not steadfast toward him. Talking about that generation in the desert under Moses. They weren't faithful to God's covenant. And yet God, being compassionate, he atoned for their iniquity. He didn't destroy them. He restrained his anger often. and He did not stir up his wrath. He remembered they are just flesh, wind that passes and doesn't come again. Let me encourage you in this regard. Whatever your past was, can we forget your past for now? Forgetting what lies behind? Can we press on to what lies ahead? And what lies ahead right now are decisions about your temptation to say, it's time for me to get serious about this. But I know this, that God can look at my past and say, what's done is done, but in the future, let's not take another left turn. Can we walk steady and straight? And God is a God with all the weaknesses. Like Psalm 103 says, a father has compassion on his kids. He knows their frame. He knows we're just dust. But he can take weak people like you and I and provide for us opportunities to stand strong. But you've got to do everything you can do to stand against the evil one on that evil day. So today is part of that equipment. Strap on your sword, put the breastplate on, put the helmet on and say, it's time for me to fight sin in a way I haven't fought it before. It's not about pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. I understand it's about grace. I get sanctification. I, 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 I guarantee I'm orthodox on that. It's just that you and I better do all that we can do to stand firm. I don't want to be like the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the people that constituted the Sanhedrin. Let's don't presume any longer upon the patience of God. Pray with me, would you? God, help us as a church to see the seriousness of our sins. I know it's kind of a downer sermon. I get that. But sometimes we just need to wake up to the fact that what we did last week, what we did last month, it cannot be repeated. It cannot continue. We need to say before you, it's done. It's over. I'm not going back. I'm not going to put myself in that situation again. I'm not going to believe those lies anymore. I'm going to I'm going to have to surround myself with the kind of help that I need, which starts with truth being in my brain. Godly peer pressure. I got to let some people in on this so that I can do the right thing next time I'm tempted. I got to get this all together in my life so that we don't move further down a descent into some kind of sin that brings dishonor upon not just us, but it brings dishonor upon your name. God, we thank you that you're a kind and compassionate God that we sit here today without a lot of the consequences that should be on us right now. You've been withholding and not giving full vent to your righteous parental discipline. And yet, God, we want to make sure that we don't presume any longer upon that. We'd like you to take care of us, God, clearly guiding us in a path of righteousness for your name's sake. So provide, God, very clear application for this sermon for us. Bring to mind the very specific temptations that we deal with. Let us have success in our lives, not to take this lightly. God, we commit ourselves afresh to you this morning.
pray this sermon would do us good for weeks and months ahead. In Jesus' name, amen.